Good morning. How are we doing today? No rain. Yay. Yeah, for today. Anyway, hey, let me draw attention to the bulletin before we move on here. If you'd fill out the communication card, and if you're a guest, we'd like you to do that as well uh, so we can have a record of your being here. And there's several things to sign up for. And please notice the insert in your bulletin. We are wanting you to try a neighborhood cookout. Now, it doesn't have to be in Mount Pulaski. It can be out in the country, Elkhart. Chestnut, Lincoln, wherever you live. Uh, yeah, Chestnut. Um, so anyway, one of our goals as a church to grow in loving relationships and also in our outreach, and this really helps with both, just building bridges with your neighbors. So uh, if you're going to do it by July 12th, you need to get working on it now. So do that. Check with some neighbors, see if you can get something going. And there's some helps there for you. And uh, don't talk religion. Don't preach and... You may want to avoid wind farm talk, anything, anything that's a little bit controversial, uh, Supreme Court talk, you know, a lot of things like that. Anyway, just build relationships. Just build some bridges with some people. So uh, be working on that this week. And if the 19th doesn't work, or the 12th doesn't work, go to the 19th if you need a little more time. All right, songs that shape the mind and heart. We've been going through the Psalms. The Psalms are a hymn book, uh, the prayer book of the Bible. Jesus himself used the Psalms as a guide and as a tool for his walk with God. And we want you to read some Psalms this summer. And next week, we'll see what the Psalm says to the United States of America. It's 4th of July weekend, and we'll do some patriotic stuff next week too, so I think you'll enjoy that. We've talked about how these Psalms can impact our mind and our hearts, and they shape our thinking and our attitudes and our emotions. And two weeks ago, we talked about meditation, how important meditation is for a healthy life. Meditation is not emptying the mind. It is filling the mind with the right stuff, God's Word and God's will, and it will make a difference over time. Meditation means to contemplate, ponder, chew on the Word, and if you really ponder and meditate, you will, it will deepen your prayer life, and it will start shaping your mind and your heart, and it'll take some time. Now, I want to share something. Once in a while, I get away to read and spend some time with God. I'll usually take a morning. I call it my half day with God, and I was doing that this past Thursday. I headed over to Lincoln to do that, and uh, just a personal retreat, and I saw this cloud, and I know many of you saw this, and it was amazing. From one, it was from one end of the sky to the other. I really couldn't get the whole panoramic view of it. It looked like a huge tunnel. How many of you saw that? Yeah, yeah, a whole bunch of you saw it. It looked like a huge tunnel or a huge earthworm. I'd never seen anything like that. And then my text for that day was Psalm 104, which says, Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. And it did kind of look like a tent, think about it. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. And I thought, wow, you know, that was just really a good reminder of God's greatness. So I've listed some psalms in your bulletin for you to read this week. Read some of them, read all of them, you know, whatever you can do. And you won't always have great epiphanies. There will be times we don't feel like reading them, but it's still a good discipline to read them. There's times you don't feel like doing a lot of things, you still do them because it's the right thing to do. And those psalms will feed you even if you're not feeling like it. Psalm 22 today. There are various categories of psalms. Uh, some are thanksgiving, some psalms are uh, praise or gratitude or confession, but the largest category of psalms are psalms of lament, complaining, and maybe because there's a lot in life to lament. Now, we played a game last week for Father's Day. Wasn't Father's Day fun? That was so cool. Anyway, we played sit down if, 
And so we had dads sit down if they got a tie or whatever, anything. Uh, next week, we're going to play another game. But today, I want to play this game. I want to play Stand Up If. I want you to stand up if you've never had a problem. End of game, okay? <laughs> yeah, we've all had problems. The statistics suggest that those who entered the doors this morning, everyone who here this morning, anywhere from one-third to one-half are experiencing right now some kind of storm or some kind of trouble in their life. One-third to one-half of people sitting here this morning. One in five American adults suffers from some sort of mental illness during the course of a year. The average family encounters a crisis every six months. And Psalms is filled with laments and complaints and struggles, and the very number of them, I think, is a commentary on the nature of life. That's how life is. We don't live without suffering. We don't exist without some sort of trial or difficulty or pain. So we have this lament psalm, and whenever I get ready to work on a sermon, first thing I do is read through the text, jot down some first impressions, and when I read through this psalm, the first thing I notice is how it goes back and forth, kind of like a yo-yo, I mean, between questioning God and then trusting God. He laments his problems, he asks questions, he wonders why he's having to go through this ordeal, but he also says he trusts in God. And then he goes back to his problems, how bad they are and overwhelming and wondering, God, where are you? And then he says, but God, I trust in you. Back and forth, like a ping-pong match, kind of chaotic, almost irrational. And then I got to thinking, when you go through trials... When I go through trials, that's, ten, how, that's how we tend to be, a little chaotic. There's times we have ups, times we have downs in our thinking and our feelings. There's times we trust God and times we wonder about God. Well, let's read these first eight verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's an interesting way to start a prayer. Start out questioning God. Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of my anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and a man, not, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now, there's a lot more, uh, and we're not going to read all of this, but it's a very emotional psalm. This guy is spilling his guts. Uh, his emotions just pour forth from this. And I gather, garnered about four major themes that I think we can all identify with these themes when we're going through some of these hard times. First of all, simply the pain of suffering. My God, my God. Now, anytime in the Bible something's repeated, it's to intensify it uh, for emphasis. And there's a sense of desperation. My God, my God, what am I going to do? What can I do? Why is this happening to me? Uh, why, why, why is this uncertainty? And there's doubt. There's very real anguish here. He says, by day and by night. In other words, that's constant. I can't get it out of my mind. I can't get away from it. We don't know what he's going through, but it's some kind of a trial and he's suffering the pain. And there's several outcomes that he's experiencing because of this suffering. He experiences abandonment by God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. God doesn't hear. He doesn't answer my prayers. My prayers don't do any good. It sounds like, it looks like God doesn't even care. I'm abandoned by him. Second part of his pain is isolation from people. He's scorned by everyone and despised. He says not only has God abandoned him, but people are backing off. Now, when you go through problems, like 
a divorce or a loss of a loved one or a tragedy, people around you will tend to do one of three things. One, some will come beside you and they'll walk through the valley with you. Uh, some say this is when you find out who your real friends are and you need them. The second group will shy away. People say, well, I'm just uncomfortable. I don't know what I would say and, and they just back off. And they don't mean any harm. They just back off. And then the third group will condemn, point fingers, like Job's friend did with him. They accused him. It's your own fault. If you'd been a better person, if you'd been a better parent, this wouldn't have happened. If you hadn't made that bad decision. So, so not only does God not care to this almost, but a lot of people don't care or they attack. There's an old blues song that says, nobody knows you when you're down and out. And then another part of the pain is self-loathing. I'm a worm, not a man. A sense of worthlessness. I can't get much lower than a worm, and his self-esteem is gone. Now, in Sunday school, we had this acrostic, and you all know, all heard of you over in Sunday school, is joy, J-O-I, Jesus first, others second, yourself last, and that's the way to joy. Well, in this psalm, Jesus doesn't care. Others have rejected me, and I loathe myself. So Jesus, others, and self, they've all gone in the tank. There's nothing to rejoice in. And he goes on and on. It's a pretty long psalm. I'm not going to read it all. But he describes his suffering in every image he can think of. Verse 11, he says, The bulls of Bashan encircle me. His, the lions are tearing their prey. He's poured out like water. His bones are out of joint. His heart is like wax. His strength is dried up. Dogs surround him. People glare and stare and gloat. And he uses all these images to convey the emotions of his loss and anguish. And he goes on and on. Like a long-winded preacher, goes on and on and on and on, expounding about his complaints. And thankfully, we don't have one of those kind of preachers. Amen? Amen? Yeah, okay. Fourth reason for his pain. Suffering is often long-lasting. Trouble would be a lot easier if we knew it would end tomorrow. We could handle a lot easier if we knew it end next week or next month, but sometimes it just goes on. I once read about grief when you lose a loved one, and if you put the emotions of grief on a time graph, time chart, It'll look like a two-humped camel. Right at the time of loss, of course, there's a big spike in grief, and the grief goes off the charts, really. And if you've lost a loved one, you know how awful it is. It's like your guts are being shredded. And so you have this describable loss, and it can happen with other loss, loss of a child, uh, loss of maybe divorce, loss of a marriage, or financial disaster. So immediately there's a jump on the grief matter. And then one to two, usually about two years later, there's a second hump almost as great as the first hump, and the grief is just almost as deep, and family and friends don't understand, come on, mom, dad's been gone for two years, you've got to get over it. Well, she's not over it, and it's quite natural to have another jump in the grief later on. Suffering isn't resolved quickly. I told Ellen when we were dating, now some of you don't know, I lost my first spouse to cancer, and she lost her first spouse to cancer, and Anyway, I told Ellen that I will still have some periodic grief moments. And they just come up <laughs> without notice. That something triggers it, and all of a sudden, ugh, you know. And that was two or three years after the loss. And, and it is long-lasting. And to a certain extent, it never fully goes away. And then one other reason uh, that comes out, another thing comes out of his pain is a sense of hopelessness. He is done in. He is completely beset by the powers that are overwhelming him and there's just no way out of this. Now, we don't know what's going on with him, but what he says here could apply to any kind of suffering. 
physical, mental, emotional, relational, financial, job, family, worry, whatever. It can be outward threats, it can be inward threats. And here is the power of the Psalms. They help us express what's going on in, in the depths of our soul. The Lament Psalms help us when we come to times of turmoil uh, because we can see that someone else has been through it. And the Psalms can help us prepare for when those bad times come. You fill yourself with God's Word and it'll come back to minister to you when you're going through those inevitable trials of life. So the first outpouring is the pain. The second outpouring is that suffering leads to a crisis of faith. One word sums up this psalm. Why? And why is not an uncommon question in laments. Psalm 10, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Psalm 43, why have you rejected me? Psalm 44, why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? Why? Where are you, God? I mean, how can you stand by and allow this? And your faith is challenged. And this crisis of faith happens because there's a contradiction between our theology and our experience. Our theology is our understanding of God and it says, you know, our God is good, God is powerful, He's with us, He watches over us, He'll bless us, but our experience doesn't always match that theology. Now, some of you have heard this before, so forgive me, but many of you haven't. I was still in seminary when I was preaching in Modesto, Illinois, a little church of about 80 people, and there was a young couple in that church I had the joy of baptizing both of them, brand new Christians, uh, neither had a Christian upbringing. They just started out their walk with God, wonderful people expecting their first child. And late in the pregnancy, the doctors could not find a heartbeat, and the couple was told that the child the mother was carrying had died within her, a cord had wrapped around her neck. And this mother went to the hospital knowing that her labor would be in vain, giving birth to a corpse. Now they had done, that I knew of, nothing to deserve that. In fact, they'd just been baptized. They should be blessed. And my question was, why? Why? And I was worried they would lose their faith, and it was a crisis of faith, but they survived it. Today, he's an elder. She's very active in the church. They're just godly people. At the same time, another young couple, and he happened to be my best friend in that church, was expecting their first child, and they had their baby born pretty much brain dead, and that child laid in the hospital for 30 days, and then I conducted my second baby funeral within a month of the first one. Today, that man's a preacher. They had a crisis of faith, but they made it through. But you just, why? I sat in a courtroom to support a couple. This was in Robinson, where the wife, who was a believer, had been raped. A guy had broken into the back door of their house one night while the husband was gone, held a knife to her throat and raped her. She was a middle-aged woman, great woman of faith. The perpetrator said he couldn't remember anything because he was on drugs. I can't imagine what the husband went through, as well as her. Another wife drives home on a rainy night. She pushes the garage door opener, and as the door lifts, she sees the full-length profile of her husband, who just hung himself earlier that afternoon. You get pulled out of school by dad as a child to tell you he's decided not to stay married to your mother any longer, and he hopes you'll understand. And you read about forced prostitution and genocide and a young man walking into a church and open fire and killing nine people in a Bible study. And, and no wonder people said, I can't believe in a God like that, that allows that. Crisis of faith. But one thing I notice in Psalm 22, and it's true of all the laments, Never is God's existence questioned. 
No one becomes an atheist because of suffering in the lament psalms. Certainly there's crisis of faith, and they're honest about it, but they do not lose faith. Why? Well, today people justify turning their back on God because of the suffering they see in the world, and there's some atheists because of suffering. Why don't the psalmist question God's existence? Well, let's do that. Let's, let's eliminate God for a moment. You know, let's just say there is no God above. Atheism is correct. There is no caring, loving, powerful creator. Where does that leave us? Well, for one thing, that means when bad things happen, that's just nature. That's just the way it is. You'll never hear animals complain about the injustice of life. They have no sense of injustice or right or wrong. To them, it's just all nature. It's natural. It's not wrong for a wolf to tear open a rabbit. That's a part of life. That's survival of the fittest. And no animal tells that wolf that he's being evil or bad. And if someone were a genuine atheist and consistent, they've got to try to wrestle with that question, why would it be wrong for a man to rape a woman if there is no God? And if we're just nature and it's just survival of the fittest, you know, the strong dominate the weak, that's what we see in nature. We become really essential like children Essentially, like children on a playground without an adult to supervise, there's no one to say no, no one who can say what's right or wrong. Children just do whatever they want to do. If there is no God, we live in a valueless, meaningless universe, and there's no absolute standard by which to judge good or bad. And something deep within each one of us, even those who don't believe in God, believe there's some things that are right, some things that are wrong. And I would ask, where'd that come from? Nature does not have it. Did we just evolve and magically it appeared, this sense of right and wrong, as we evolved to a higher being? That's possible, but it's not logical. Did it come from the chemicals and matter we're made up? Does it come from the air we breathe? Of course not. If there is no God, I cannot explain why I believe in right or wrong, at least not logically. The Bible says you and I were created in God's image, and God's sense of right and wrong has been built into us, created into us. So the psalmist complains because he knows there's a good God. If there is no good God, there's no rational reason to complain. So it's still a crisis, but the psalmist knows it's only crisis because this God does exist. Here's another thing. The question why is not just a question. It is also a protest test. The question why is not just an inquiry. God, would you tell me why this is going on? And the temptation at funerals or when someone's going through a hard time and they ask, why is this happening? You know, we want to give them logical answers. That's really not what they're wanting. Well, God wanted it this way or it was his time. That's just nonsense. When someone asks why, they're not wanting a theological explanation. They're protesting. You do this with your kids. You ask your kids, why did you do that? How could you be so, whatever you say, you know, I don't know, Dad. And you're not seeking information from the child. Why did you do that? You're protesting his wrong decision, and you expected more from him. You know he's not that way, and so he protests by asking, by asking why do you do that? We do the same thing with God. We know God's good. He's better than that, and so we ask, why? We know you're not unjust. Why, then, are things happening? So Psalm 22 spills forth this pain of suffering, and that suffering creates a crisis of faith. But then in spite of the suffering, there's affirmation of faith. He says, yet I will trust you. Three times in verse 4, that word trust is found. So we have this intermingling of crisis of faith and trust, complaining to God and trusting God, which, by the way, those are not necessarily contradictory. In fact, complaining can be a sign of trust. 
Now, I'm going to get in trouble on this one, but the reason your kids complain to you is that they have an element of trust in you. If they knew you would not respond or you did not love them or would not listen, they would not come to you because they would know it's no use. So kids, you are actually complimenting your parents when you complain to them. But don't keep complaining, okay? That's not... So we have this chaotic, irrational psalm, why God, and yet I believe in God? Why God, and yet I know you're good? There's anxiety and questions. There's affirmation of faith. See, suffering tests our faith, but it also enhances our faith, believe it or not. When I go through my toughest times, that's when I hang on the tightest, and my prayers are the best. In the midst of despair, the psalmist hangs on and says, He is still my God. And then in verse 22 is an abrupt change, and all of a sudden he starts worshiping. For 10 verses, we have this fourth emotional outburst. He says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. The tension of suffering and trust culminates in praise. Go figure. Has his situation changed? I don't know. Did God deliver him? We don't know. It just doesn't say what happened, but he goes from protest to praise. The laments show us a paradox that just doesn't always make sense, but it's still true. Suffering people tend to be worshiping people. I've never understood that. But very often the people who have everything and everything's good and they don't have very many problems, those are the people who are nominal. They're weak in their faith. They, they don't have no need for God. It's people who are suffering who tend to cling on tighter. Psalm 22 is one of the most effusive and extravagant songs of thanksgiving in the whole Old Testament, and it is in the context of lament. He moves from protest to praise. Eli Wiesel was a young Jewish boy who at the age of 14 was taken from his home. This is during World War II and placed in a German concentration camp. And he tells of one night when several prisoners decided that they were going to put God on trial. They were going to try God for the horrors of the Holocaust. Now, these were men of faith. They were Jewish. But it seemed to them that their faith and their God had failed them. And they asked young Eli to witness the proceedings. And so the prosecuting attorney brings charges against God. You know, God's people have been torn from their homes, separated from their families, beaten and abused in unthinkable ways, burned alive in incinerators. There is accusation after accusation against God about the awful things that, have, that he's allowed. And then the defense attorney did his best to make the case to defend God. And in the end, the jury found God guilty of failing and abandoning his people, maybe even guilty of not existing. And Eli said after the trial, the mood in the room was somber and dark and depressing. The men later prepared for bed, and a few minutes after that, when the time came for the Jewish evening prayer, these same men who had just found God guilty of abandoning them got on their knees and prayed the evening prayer. Irrational. They just condemn God and then they praise Him. But I do the same thing. So do you when you go through trials. You protest and you praise. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines and though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food and there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls and there's too much rain for the crops. I added that one. Yet I will rejoice 
in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Lord, every one of us goes through troubles. We all have experienced them. And uh, we all go through crises and times when we wonder why. But even though things happen, yet we will rejoice in you. You are our only recourse and our only hope. You are the one who will deliver. We know that. And you, you who knows about suffering as well. Because you sent your son to suffer for us that we might have life in him. We thank you and we praise you. Amen.